Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. A little over an hour from now, the British Parliament votes on the Brexit deal. Theresa May's government is uh, in deep trouble on Brexit. The most recent poll said that the deal would get voted down by a two-to-one margin. We are going to ponder what's next with Edward Luce from the Financial Times. He's the U.S. national editor. He's author of The Retreat of Western Liberalism. Thanks for joining us again, Edward Luce. It's great to be with you. Um, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, just look at what's happening now and say, well, I, you know, this really throws things up for grabs. Um, is the ball kind of going in Jeremy Corbyn's lap after this? Um, not necessarily. I mean, it's clear that Theresa May is going to lose this vote and probably very, very heavily, which in any other context in British history would mean that her prime ministership would be over. But um, standards have changed um, and she's probably going to stay on. Uh, what Corbyn will do is then um, demand a vote of no confidence in the government. Um, he will probably lose that vote of no confidence. Uh, if in the unlikely event that he won it, then there would be a general election. But in spite of all the woes that Theresa May's government, the spectacular sort of woes that it's going through, some of them self-created and self-inflicted, Corbyn's Labour Party is still several points behind the Conservative government, which by many accounts is the worst government Britain's had in its history. It's still trailing that government. So you know, I don't think things are necessarily going Corbyn's way, which doesn't alter the fact they're not going May's way either. Well, what does that leave uh, Theresa May with? She's got three days to come up with Plan B if she is still in power in, in a day or two. Uh, she's got three days to come up with a plan that looks sufficiently different to the one that she's uh, got now that she's going to lose the vote on now uh, and then put it back to Parliament and say, look, um, are, are you listening carefully this time? I'm going to ask you <laughs> the same question. Um, but unfortunately for May, the European <laughs> Union, um, uh, who would uh, have to agree to a change in the plan, um, have said, no, nope, the ball's in your court. We've given as much as we can. Um, and, uh, you know, that's it. So whether May can extract some kind of vague language or pledges or um, undertakings from Brussels that make her deal, her plan B, look sufficiently different for plan, from the plan A and get a different vote out of the British Parliament is, a, I think, a very dubious proposition. It looks extremely unlikely to me. Well, then we move on to more exotic choices like no Brexit or uh, an Article 50 delay. Uh, wh what do you think the likelihood of these things are? Uh, it's, it's such a strange Alice in Wonderland situation that all these improbable scenarios, namely crashing out of Europe on March the 29th uh, with no deal, um, and quite possibly inducing um, a deep recession um, on the one hand. On the other, having a people's vote, um, a second referendum to ask the British people if they're listening carefully this time, um, uh, uh, because we're going to repeat the question, um, to um, getting Europe to extend Article 50, meaning push that March 29th deadline for exit, um, you know, a few months out. Um, all of these scenarios are equally plausible. The problem here is that the British Parliament, whilst they might, by majorities of two to one, not like 
Theresa May's deal, there is no majority in Parliament for any other scenario. So, you know, the, it, it's not so much that the lunatics are running the asylum, it's that the asylum is in complete anarchy. Now, I saw an interesting uh, suggestion from Yanis Varoufakis, the former finance minister for Greece who was writing a column. He said, you know, uh, Great Britain should just pause for a couple of years and renegotiate their whole thing. All the problems that underlie the Brexit deal are constitutional. They're about devolution being uh, not fully participated in. They're about Northern Ireland. They're, um, they should rethink whether, you know, their, their reliance on finance at the center. Um, he, he suggested kind of a people's debate lasting two years and then going back at it, making some changes and, and, and coming at this thing fresh. Uh, how's that for an idea? <laughs> um, you mean pressing the pause button on, on Brexit? Um, so keeping, keeping the status quo for a couple of years? Well, you know, that would amount, that would require um, a great deal of forbearance from Brussels. Um, I think it would also require, as, as perhaps is um, Varoufakis's personality, a great leap of faith in the ability of the British people to have a, a more constructive debate than the uh, schoolyard slagging match they've been indulging in for the last two years. I, 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 my question would be, what is it exactly that's going to change the weather um, so that we can have a sort of founding fathers, you know, 2.0 um, uh, um, conversation in Britain that would produce any better outcome than, than the really stark choices uh, facing Britain today, to, to boil it down to, you know, what those who would be in favour of Remain would argue is that look, Britain is a bitterly divided country. The question is, do you want it to be bitterly divided inside Europe or outside Europe? You know, it's um, interesting. The I, I saw a plea in The Guardian uh, yesterday that said the Labour Party has just got to really embrace, remain, and go for it for the sake of the working class. Uh, does that sound like a reasonable position for the Labour Party? I think um, Jeremy Corbyn is, is really sort of paralyzed at the moment because he knows that three quarters of Labour voters and most of his members of Parliament are very strongly in favor of a people's vote, of giving the British electorate a second bite at this apple. But he himself personally and a small sort of group of, um, let's say, cultural Marxists around him have a deep um, antipathy towards the European Union, dating from the late 60s, early 70s, as a capitalist club, as a kind of capitalist conspiracy. They also have this... Um, uh, socialist belief that um, you can heighten the contradictions and that the more um, a crisis can be brought on, the greater the opportunity to bring in socialism. Um, it's an extraordinary position for the leader of the opposition and putative next prime minister to be holding in Britain of all countries, but he remains the immovable um, ob object here um, against his party's um, otherwise unstoppable force in favour of a second vote. And one or other is going to have to give. I don't think the popular sentiment in favour of a people's vote is going to change in the Labour Party. Um, so the, the great hope is that somehow Corbyn can be persuaded to have a road to Damascus moment. All right. We'll, we'll have to wait and see on that one, as we will all this. I wonder if you could share some thoughts on uh, what the European Union might be thinking here. 
Uh, they, they, from reading um, insider accounts of how they approach British officials these days, they it sounds like most of them just want to be done with this in in all honesty and don't want to go do a bunch of more toing and froing with the British. And the British should just get their act together and do something. Is that about how you would size up where the European Union is at? I think so. You know, I mean, on the one hand, it's fair to say that if you look at the other problems um, the Europeans have, um, the political problems domestically, Macron's administration is is really weakening um, in the face of these yellow vest protests. Uh, Angela Merkel's administration in Germany is, um, you know, threatening to fall apart. Um, It looks like Germany might be going into recession. Um, You've got the challenge, the existential challenge to the liberal democratic values of the European Union posed by Viktor Orban's Hungary um, and by the Law and Justice Party in, in Poland, the government in Poland. And then, of course, Italy, um, you know, any point threatening to um, create a Eurozone crisis by breaking the the rules of of the single currency. Um, Britain, Brexit uh, is is old news. Um, You know, clearly the fear that others are going to follow Britain and leave Europe is is gone. Um, And so um, the Europeans, I think, just want to get it done and dusted because it's probably fourth or fifth on the list of problems that they face. They want to focus their attention on those other live problems I just listed. Having said that, though, they don't want an unruly no-deal Brexit because that, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight percentage point um, contraction in the British economy, that deep recession, borderline depression that some economists um, predict would hit the British economy uh, with a no-deal Brexit would also cause a, a serious contraction in the Eurozone economy. Britain would be its largest trading partner. Um, and and lots of them export to Britain. And, um, you know, their business and their wealth is based on good trading ties with Britain. So a British depression or severe recession would cause um, what looks like the possibility of a Eurozone recession or, 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 or a steep slowdown to tip over into a recession there, too. So they want an orderly exit. I guess in their wildest dreams, some of them, particularly those who aren't French, would like to see a people's vote and Britain say, oh, um, uh, we've changed our mind. We're going to stay after all. Um, but nobody, you know, nobody can plan around those kinds of fantasy scenarios. I'm talking with Edward Luce, the Financial Times' U.S. editor, and coming up after the break, I'm going to talk with a Republican who approaches climate change as a national security issue. Stay with us. I wanted to talk, Ed, about a couple of the uh, items you've been writing about there from Washington. Uh, you had a, a swamp notes uh, right, uh, um, item on your on your website, and you talked about the global rapture tour of the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo as he went through the Middle East, and he's just concluding this ten stop tour where he made this big address in Cairo. He talked about his the open Bible on his desk. He kind of brought religion into the conversation, and you know it was. Um, it was quite a quite a tour. Uh, what, what's your reaction to the to the Mike Pompeo tour of the Middle East? 
Well, you mentioned that Cairo speech, which, as you know, was um, meant to be the corrective to the speech that President Barack Obama gave there in Cairo as well, 10 years ago, um, in which he attempted to reset America's relations in the Middle East, with the Middle East, um, and express understanding for some of the fears of the Muslim world um, for, uh, um, you know, for America's role in the world. And, and that was sort of branded the apology, apology tour, the apology speech, Barack Obama selling out on American exceptionalism. So I guess what what Pompeo was trying to do was to give the exact opposite of Obama's speech um, by directly um, attacking it, um, by saying America's self-inflicted period of shame um, uh, for which you must read apology uh, is over and we are a force for good for, uh, in the region and we are back. Um, given the fact that this was, you know, um, Egypt, a large Muslim country, um, Cairo, a large Muslim audience, um, it was it, it was a little bit jarring, I think, to many people who, uh, who um, saw and read that speech to hear him profess his evangelical Christian beliefs so strongly at the start um, to um, um, give a speech that um, did not mention the word democracy except once um, uh, and did not um, present any kind of vision for how America as a force for good would be back in the Middle East. And of course, as you know, President Trump um, you know, has been saying the US will be withdrawing from Syria, the 2000 American troops in Syria, um, very, very quickly. Then John Bolton and Mike Pompeo on their respective Middle Eastern trips last week have been saying something quite different, um, uh, which is, no, no, it'll be slow and conditions-based, and no, we haven't yet defeated ISIS. So a speech that was intended to present a coherent Trump administration view of the Middle East and America's relations with the Middle East has actually just, I think, deepened the confusion about what exactly Trump is doing. Is he coming? Is he going? Is he leaving quickly? Is he leaving slowly? Is it based on malleable conditions or on no conditions at all? Who knows? You know, it seems pretty clear that if it's up to Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, the U.S. is staying in the region and coming to Iran and building a military alliance against Iran and Iranian expansionism, this seems to be the unifying force in their vision is we hate Iran. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And the New York Times has had some very good reporting recently about how John Bolton um, over the past few months has pressed and pressed from the White House, the Pentagon to draw up um, options for military strikes um, on the Iranian regime, and that those were watered down or blocked by Secretary Jim Mattis, who, uh, as you know, resigned um, in late December after Trump had announced the Syria troop withdrawal. Uh, the fact that you now have no so-called adults left in the administration, um, but that the most experienced figure there is John Bolton, and the fact that John Bolton, uh, along with um, Secretary uh, Pompeo, is uber hawkish, on Iran does indicate that that uh, in the absence of any other sort of larger policy on the Middle East and uh, or Trump doctrine for the Middle East uh, that the Iran one is going to is going to come increasingly to the fore. But it also seems clear that there are people within the Trump administration still who are against John Bolton and leaking the information on him to to, to that about his uh, reports. They're 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 in there doing something. 
The, yes, and the, the, the deep the deep state is um, busy and at work and not suffering from a partial government <laughs> shutdown um, by the looks of it. Um, I, I think that, you know, across the Pentagon, the idea of um, provoking what could become a full-scale shooting match between um, Iran and the United States is, is viewed with complete horror. Um, uh, that you know, this is a this is an institution that is um, attempting to manage much lower level war situations in Afghanistan, to some degree Iraq and Syria, and the idea of getting into a war with the Iranian regime uh, is not is not something that um, that anybody wants to be. Um, planning for. But so I, I don't think that Bolton is ever going to be uncontested. And I don't think Trump himself is unconflicted either. I think, you know, he has on the one hand, this strong promise to the American people to disentangle America from foreign wars. Um, but on the other, he, you know, he does seem to be um, uh, strongly anti-Iranian as well. And his friends in the region, you know, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia and the Emiratis in the UAE and elsewhere, Sisi in Egypt, share that anti-Iranian hawkishness. And, and he's clearly uh, he's clearly open to persuasion. We are in a sort of period where Trump's mind is being contested and and ultimately whether there is going to be an escalation with Iran is going to be settled in Trump's mind. I was interested or by Trump by Trump's mind. I, I beg your pardon. Yeah, I, I was interested in one of your columns recently. You have been watching the uh, Democrats, the new Democrats, roll into the House of Representatives and thinking about uh, the last electoral election campaign a little bit and. Um, you've declared the age of incrementalism among the Democratic Party dead, and now there is a new radicalized party, and the Democrats are, are coming in with a different set of ideas. Yes, I, I think that you know, for the first time I can remember, and and you know, this pretty much spans my uh, my lifetime. The force, the ferment of intellectual energy and big ideas—some good, some bad, some you know um, popular, some wacko—is um, on the left, not the right, um, and and that's um, you know that's got implications for American politics, very strong implications. The era of uh, the Clinton Obama era, what I sort of call the incrementalist Democrats um, is, I think, very much drawing to a close. You know, two years ago, Bernie Sanders took the Hillary Clinton campaign. Three years ago, took it by surprise with this radical, um, these radical proposals of um, single-payer health care and so forth. Um, and he was considered to be an outlier. Now that's a sort of minimum entry ticket to the Democratic primaries. Um, the party has shifted very much to the left. And, and I think that's for keeps. Well, um, we'll see how that goes. I think uh, a lot of people are, you know, it's not so radical to want health care for all. You're British, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm in <laughs> favor of it personally. I'm, universal basic income, I might have a, a more skeptical opinion on. <laughs> so do a lot of people. Well, it's been good to talk with you. Edward Luce from the Financial Times. Uh, the, he's the U.S. editor there, and he's also the author of Retreat of Western Liberalism. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about Brexit and some of the doings of Washington, D.C. Always a pleasure. Thank you.
Coming up after the break, we'll hear a national security argument for, argument for moving away from oil. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Five years ago, the Pentagon issued a report that said climate change poses an immediate risk to national security. But not a lot of politicians make a national security argument about climate change. My next guest does. Gregory Ballard served two terms as mayor of Indianapolis, ending in 2015. He's a retired lieutenant colonel in the Marines, and his book on the issue is Less Oil, More or More Caskets, The National Security Argument for Moving Away from Oil. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks, nice to meet you. It's good to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, tell us a little about yourself, because it's, it sounds like you've come to this issue uh, from your term in, in the Marines. You, you went in the first Persian Gulf War and uh, got a bird's eye view of what's going on with our energy policy. Yeah, it was. Uh, I always tell people I did not really have an aha moment back in 1991. I was in those burning oil wells, as, you, as a lot of people remember those. Uh, I was in that for three days. But there's no aha moment to be had when there's no change that's really possible. We knew we were fighting for oil. The global economy demanded that you know we had to make sure that uh, things stabilized in that regard. And we're in Middle East for oil anyway. But there was really no way to change this. But when you look into the numbers and you see that 70% of the oil in the world is used for transportation, and now we have technology that's changing fairly rapidly uh, year on year, Maybe there's a way to look at this differently, a way to move away from oil, hopefully in a peaceful manner, but certainly to move away from oil and not make it a critical strategic commodity for the world. Uh, you, in the book, you add up a lot of the things that have happened over the years that I think people don't, you know, people don't connect the dots really to, to the terrorism attacks uh, from in Beirut and, you know, a long time ago. That, but they were really all about the same thing. They were, they were about uh, the U.S. interest in the Middle East, which was oil. Absolutely. And that's why I, I went into historical records, if you will. And, and back in, the, in 79 with the, in Iran, when the hostages were taken for 444 days, that was what I have in the, uh, in the book, uh, an article by Susan Chun of CNN, that that was really the beginning of political Islam. But it also was that we really told everybody at that point in time that we're in there for oil. We, we have been doing this ever since the British pulled out in the early 70s. We've been in there protecting the flow of oil for the entire world. It's just part of our responsibility. People don't know that. In, eight, in 2017, that cost us $81 billion dollars above and beyond the wars and everything else, to protect the oil supply routes and the infrastructure for the entire world. We've been doing that for decades. People don't know that. As I, as I talk to the people about this, this is fascinating. They literally don't know that. Uh, they don't think really on a day-to-day basis that terrorism is primarily funded by oil, by the sale of oil. And they also don't think of the strategic leverage that all these oil-rich nations have over the rest of the world, Russia and OPEC, and they have 80% of the oil, world's oil reserves. People think the United States has all these oil reserves. 
we got maybe two to three percent. We're not even in the top ten of countries with oil reserves, and people don't know this. There's a lot of talk about you know disentangling ourselves from the Middle East uh, since the Iraq War, and uh, but we just can't seem to do it. And the, there's a reason we can't seem to do it, and it's because we are interested in what is going on there with the energy, but nobody says it. Exactly, and I am saying that. But the but people do know this. I have a couple. Uh, paper or college papers in the book back actually 15, 16 years ago, uh, kind of say this. Uh, there's a recent uh, Q&A that came out from Securing America's Future Energy, General Wald and General Conway, former commandant of the Marine Corps, and they talk about this along with some other people. But there are some really good quotes in there. And General Conway, for instance, says, why, are we, why do we protect the oil that goes from Iran to China? That's a really good question. But we do. But we do. And the other piece, you know, he also says in there that when uh, we tell our troops, we tell our tell the American people that we're in the Middle East for American interests, but if you scratch that just a little bit, that comes up oil. People know this, but it's not in the general public. And the cost of all of this has been enormous over the last 40-plus years. It's just enormous. When you look at the, the terrorist incidents, when you look at the Persian Gulf War, when you, people forget about the plane hijackings, and when you look at the, the hostage takings, when you think about 9-11, when you think about all these things, oil is the thing that keeps us in the Middle East. We want to maintain the global economy for everybody so we have good trading partners. But if 70% of the oil in the world is used for transportation, maybe there's a way to look at this differently here into the future. Yeah, and at the... Um institution that does seem to have some appreciation of this is the military. I quoted the Pentagon um, report from five years ago talking about climate change as a national security. They're, they're under no illusions about what they're doing and protecting there. No, they're not. But to be fair, none of that is in my book, right? I, uh, I don't talk about climate change or the environment or sustainability in the book because I'm really trying to create an article for people who kind of poo-poo that idea. And I want people to understand that if you don't want to go in that direction, well, look at this. Look at how many thousands of lives this has cost us, how many trillions of dollars this has cost us, while we now have an opportunity staring us in the face, a technology change that can, that can change the dynamics throughout the world. And we seem to be going away from it. We should be sprinting toward it. Uh, nations around the world are going that way. We seem to not be going that way right now. All right. Why do you think that is? It's almost you're making a an argument about dollars and cents. You're making an argument that would appeal to conservatives. Yet we see our Republican administrations time and time again not go that go the route you're <laughs> articulating. They're going for something else. They are, and now that's why I'm I want them to read this book because this is a straight straight national security argument. Uh, this has caused us enormously over the last 40-plus years. Uh, I'm really trying to protect the future military. I was over there. I understand what this is about. Uh, I don't want our military going into harm's way anymore unless it's absolutely necessary. And again, if I go back to how much oil is used for transportation, maybe there's a way to change this. And that's no maybe. There is a way to change this. If we start now, we can in, within 20 years, we absolutely can change it. Because if we don't, and my, my last, the last chapter in the book, I don't know if you saw that or not, that little half page in there that says, if we don't do this now, Go look at those 10- to 12-year-old kids who are at playing Little League Baseball or at a robotics tournament or at a swim meet. Ten more years, those kids are going to be over there in the Middle East fighting. And we, we don't want that anymore. 
Explain some of the things you did as mayor of Indianapolis that um, people might be surprised. You're a Republican. You went into Indianapolis and you started a sustainability office. You you just you went at this issue. I did actually, and uh, you did a little research. Little research. Uh, we did, we, and I was kind of known that way for that for the sustainability office and the direction that we were heading. Uh, we were changing the fleet out and clearly to, uh, to go to plug-in hybrids and uh, all-electric vehicles where they were warranted and where they made sense. Uh, we brought in the first all-electric car-sharing service in the nation with Bellori, the people that do the auto leave out of Paris. We brought them into the city of Indianapolis. Uh, we've done a lot of things. Uh, I could tell you about the other stuff that we've done, uh, not related to transportation, but uh, bicycle lanes and things like that. We re- really created the bicycle culture. We've done a lot of that, but it, it was just... Uh, it was frankly overdue in Indianapolis, and I just was able to do that. It was yeah. ca- almost counterculture when I did it, right? I, <laughs> I have a lot of my friends saying, what are you doing, right? But it just made sense. I'm trying to create the city that people want to live in. Yeah, I went down to Indianapolis with my family to ride the cultural trail, which is this loop that's around Indianapolis, yeah. and it's a real nice um, brick loop that yeah. you can ride. Yeah. It's uh, really pleasant. You can go take diversions. I had a great time with my family. I always have a great time biking. Yeah. And I, I went there, and I, I didn't know anything about the electric cars on the streets of Indianapolis, but there is electric car sharing people can have uh, right. right there on the streets. And I imagine that was a little controversial. People people didn't want you know, they take up space and things like that. And there were yeah. all the issues that you get with bike lanes and kind of that. Kind it of wasn't thing. Uh, it wasn't in the beginning. We announced it in thirteen. We actually executed it in fifteen, which is the last year I was the mayor. I I decided not to run again. I was frankly tired, but uh, and wanted to to kind of recharge my batteries. But uh, it got a little political in fifteen, which is kind of funny. I I, I can say I can say this here, and I, I said it in. in uh, Indianapolis, but uh, as you said, I'm a Republican. Uh, our council was Democratic, and uh, in that last year, even though they were all four and thirteen and fourteen, in that last year they started to fight me, and I don't know why, because I'd already announced I'm not running for mayor anyway. But I always used to tell them, "Hey, I, I've got the only Democrats in the entire country who are against uh, clean cars," and uh, they didn't like it when I said that. But uh, but uh, they, I, you know, they were there. They just weren't there politically. So. Oh. Why do you think there is so much um, contesting of these kind of ideas? Uh, if if we've got a uh, an excellent national security argument, there's all sorts of environmental arguments you can make. You can come at this from a million different ways, but people don't want to change. It's there's a even if you go away from the money issues, but people it's hard to change people's habits. They want to do what they want to do. Yeah, this is a clear disruption of transportation in the country and uh, autonomous vehicles will be coming forth here in the next few years too and that will do the same thing but the, the move to electricity really hurts uh, a lot of legacy invested interest and I, there's that's just I tell people don't get upset about that that's just part of the disruption process they're going to come at us and there's going to there's going to be the spread of misinformation all this is going to happen and we just have to counter it with the correct information because this is this is happening uh, other countries are doing this right now. The manufacturers are going to get there eventually because if the other countries are going to mandate these cars, manufacturers are going to have to make them. But it's just part of the disruption process. It's a, it, so I tell people, don't get too upset about it, but you got you do have to counter it. you got to counter it. Yeah, I mean, it seems so hard when there is so much fossil fuel money in politics. There are so many donations that get made and you know, obviously we have um, the coal industry fighting for its life and uh, getting in with uh, the current president. There's um, 
Do you support things like people saying no to fossil fuel money in their campaign donations? That's become an issue in the House. I, I think that's up to them personally. But Appendix A in my book has a, doesn't have it by name, but it has a listing of uh, the percentage of uh, people in Congress that took money from the oil and gas industry. I don't um, – you can get into lobbying all you want, but the fact is when the vast, vast majority, Democrats and Republicans, took money from the oil and gas industry and still do. And so – uh, that has an effect. I, I talk about uh, – it's a very short appendix in there, but I just say that if so many people in that body uh, accept that money and kind of go go in that direction, then that, that's going to have some influence on policy and, and on law. I, I think that just makes sense, right? And um, So and we I, should be against that. So the, the idea that um, some of the people in Congress have now is that we should not uh, – you, know, you know, you shouldn't get to serve on this committee if you're taking – uh, oil and gas money. Well, maybe, but I, I, I'd like to be fair about all that. But here, here's the other piece about this, and this is what tech companies are learning too. And, and some of these other companies, uh, newer companies, again, the disruptive companies, right? They don't know how to do it, right? They don't know how to get into the office of a congressman or a senator. And they have to learn that process too and, and make their case. I'm not a uh, I always like to look ahead and see where this is coming, and I always, I, I actually think this is already done. We're just executing it, and I want to get there much faster, along with saving all these lives of these military young men and women. That, that really bothers me because we're still over there doing this. That really, really bothers me. But we have to get in there and and talk to our office holders and to our regulators and tell them this is coming. We want this, and they have to say that. I'm talking with Gregory Ballard. He's former mayor of Indianapolis. We're discussing some of the ideas in his book, Less Oil or More Caskets, the National Security Argument for Moving Away from Oil. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Gregory Ballard. He served two terms as mayor of Indianapolis, ending in 2015. We're talking about some of the issues in his book, Less Oil or More Caskets, The National Security Argument for Moving Away from Oil. Um, You're excited about the new number of electric cars that are coming out. I'm, I'm excited, too, but I'm also shocked at what I see on the roads. And there are so many SUVs. And I feel this as um, as someone who's going around the roads. But I, I did read data from the Detroit Auto Show about this. And it says that in December, almost 72% of new vehicles sold in the U.S. were SUVs and trucks, up from 49% at the end of 2012. Are we losing the battle for hearts and minds when it comes to uh, what kind of car to buy here for our national security purposes? I, I actually don't think so because so many of those SUVs and uh, pickup trucks – pickup trucks would be really interesting here in the near future and I'll talk about that. But there's a lot of 
uh, SUVs that are coming out here in the near future. Hyundai has one that's coming out that's really well received. It's uh, electric? It's electric. All electrics gets about 200, I think that one, 238 miles on a full charge. Uh, Jaguar has one that's really well received. Uh, Audi has one that's coming out. The Bolt has been out. That's a little smaller car, but uh, that's been out. And I think the Volvo has uh, their XC40 is going to come out. I don't think it'll be out. If it comes out this year, it'll be late this year. If not, it'll be the next year. So the car, the manufacturers are responding to this, and uh, and I think they're doing it globally, frankly, not just not just in America. And the reason that they're doing this is. I have a presentation that goes along with my book when I when I talk about this. China, India, Britain, France, Germany, Norway, they're all talking about banning the sale of internal combustion engine cars. Banning the sale of them. Norway's talking about banning driving on the road with internal combustion engine cars, whether you bought it previously or not. Uh, the funny thing about that is Norway is an oil exporter. Right, and but they've been subsidizing their electric cars Heavily. for years now, yeah. and they've got, what, 40% electric cars now? Some kind of ridiculous number. Over half of the cars bought in Norway now are electric cars of some kind. So that so they are, they're really ahead of everybody else in the world. But all these other countries, major countries, are talking about banning the sale of internal combustion engine cars, so the manufacturers obviously have to, have to react to this. Pickup trucks are interesting because there's a lot of uh, – non-traditional car manufacturers who are looking at pickup trucks, Rivian being one of them, that's just that really is trying to steal the electric uh, pickup truck market, honestly. Elon Musk is going in that direction, too, with Tesla. But and So those will be coming out here shortly also. It'll be interesting to see how they get done. Every article you pick up and read about uh, Elon Musk is seems to be, well, we're nervous. Shareholders are nervous that they've met uh, the the number of electric car owners that are out there. They're, they've got the status seekers. They've got the environmentalists. Now nobody else wants to buy one because they can only go 250 miles on a, on a fill-up, and they're worried. And this is going to create um, – you know that's why we've got people buying SUVs like hotcakes. Uh, gas is cheap, and that's that's the way. It yeah, is. but gas is, you know, gas is uh, volatile, right? Electricity is not volatile. That's one of the things I talk about in the book: is electricity is stable, has been for a long time, but cars will eventually get to over 400 miles on a charge. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, and I talk, I start a chapter in the book with. A sedan or an SUV that gets 400 miles on a charge and could be recharged in 10 minutes will absolutely change the world. At that point in time, there's absolutely no reason to buy, uh, for convenience factors, no reason to buy an internal combustion engine car. We're not that far away from 400 miles. Uh, BMW says they'll have one by 2021. It's the recharging part that might take a little bit longer. We're, we're getting much better at it, and it's, that might be five or six years away. But it, it's, it's not that far down the corner. But for most people... That electric SUV that gets 250 miles or so, that's pretty convenient for almost everybody in America. What's the role for municipalities in this? Because charging stations are an issue if you've got a city full of people who rent. Where are they charging? They, they can't even consider buying a car. Uh, yeah, yes and no. And I, I, again, I talk about that, that I think there's going to be a lot of charging stations in hotels and in, in uh, restaurants, in malls. And malls, actually, a lot of malls have them uh, already. Uh, and those Walgreens are, uh, around here is right? the, Walgreens is the yeah. hottest purveyor of charging stations yeah. in, in my area. They're going to show up in uh, lots of places. There's three levels of charging. Level one is how you plug in your lamp or your or uh, you know your TV, whatever. That's how I charge my cars at night, right? Oh, I, really? plug it, I, go, I just plug it in. You trickle charge. Eh? I trickle charge it in overnight. Uh, you can do the level the, if you have 250 miles or so on your car. 
you're going to want a level two charger at home, which is equivalent to your dryer line. Right? I sprung. You already have one. Right? I sprung for that. Yeah. So that's all, that's really all you have to do to charge at home. Uh, I do think they'll start to pop up. If you went level three charging, what I call zapping the car, then those will be, have to be at the equivalent of gas stations or highway stops and things like that. Um, and I, I think that's fine. I think we will we will get there. But I think level one and level two will be the normal. For it's a while. been funny to see the different municipalities take on this. Um, I live in a suburb, but there's almost no charging stations whatsoever. Right. Kansas City is like on fire with charging stations. They've got they've decided to invest in them. They've decided this is the future, and they're going to they're trying to spur electric car sales by the prevalence of charging stations all over the place. And I think that's great. And he's and Sly James is the mayor there. There I know him. Uh, he's also probably doing what most mayors should be doing, which is attracting talent, right? And he's probably trying to signal, signal to talent that this is the place to be. And I think that's, uh, you know, there's the chicken and egg thing with the infrastructure and, and buying buying the cars is always going to be there. It's going to be there for quite a while. But I, I think we're on the right track. It's just a matter. But the municipalities make a big difference. There's 500, and I should say government, there's 500 cars in the federal fleet. They could send a pretty strong signal. Lots of stuff. States and cities like we did in Indianapolis, they could send a pretty strong signal to their own constituents. What's the fleet like in Indianapolis? What did you buy? We, <laughs> we bought uh, some plug-in hybrids, right? So we bought some of the original Volts and we bought a couple of Leafs. And, and we bought a lot of hybrids before electric really got going. We bought a lot of hybrids. And believe it, in 2008, the first year I was the mayor, we bought some Toyota Camrys, hybrids. You would have thought the world ended. It was, but whoever drove the car said, hey, I love this car. I had my security detail drive them. I switched them out from the Crown Victorious. They were filling up every day on the Crown Vicks. They were filling up every week on the Toyota Camry. What about the I, Volts? I noticed, I mean, you're a Volt driver and Chevrolet is going to stop production of the the original plug-in hybrid That here. killed me. <laughs> <laughs> I hated to see that, but I think, I think GM will come out with something else. The Bolt is out there. We'll see what you know what the second version of the Bolt looks like and and what they're going to do with their cars. They're kind of they've been a little bit um, reticent as opposed to Ford, which is saying they're going to, they're putting uh, eleven billion dollars into forty new models and Volkswagen's completely going to electric uh, within uh, within three years. I mean, there's a lot of manufacturers saying this this and they're really going that direction. GM's been a little bit more reticent lately, but I give them a lot of credit because the Volt really was a revolutionary vehicle when it came out. Yep, and they and uh, and the second version, which is what I have, really was, was even better. And I love the car. It drives smoothly. And I, uh, for three months this past summer, I remember uh, between my Prius Prime and the Volt, uh, in a three-month period, I don't, I don't think I used a gallon of gas. And I went everywhere, all, all around central Indiana. I never used – I mean, I almost never used a gallon of gas. I mean, do you buy the idea that that, is, um, that was a transitional – uh, kind of technology, and now we, we've just got to move on and cut the cord. Plug-in hybrids are out. And, and I, actually, I actually do say that in the book that I think the plug-in hybrid is a bridge technology. I really do believe that now, on the weights, and it's a great technology because anybody can use it. Absolutely, I mean, it, it fits every lifestyle. Right, I rode the Prius Prime up here to Chicago. Right, it fits every lifestyle. There's no excuse not to have a plug-in hybrid, and then most of your miles, eighty to ninety percent of your miles, will probably be electric, which is something that will change. Uh, a lot of things in the world if we do that. But, well, again, once the uh, electric cars, once the SUVs and the, and, the, and the pickups get over 300, closer to 400 miles, there really won't be any reason to buy an internal combustion engine car anymore. 
I'm talking with Gregory Ballard. He served two terms as mayor of Indianapolis. We're talking about some of the issues in his book, Less Oil or More Caskets, The National Security Argument for Moving Away from Oil. What role does public transportation play? Because in, in Indianapolis, you have not... Um, not good. Not good, not good <laughs> public transportation. I guess that's why you're going to electric cars and stuff. But um, if you've got it, I mean, if you can build it, I, I noticed that Milwaukee is building a streetcar system. Minneapolis has a terrific um, kind of uh, above-ground train system. We're it's, building an all-electric bus rapid transit system in Indianapolis right now. All-electric bus rapid transit. All-electric bus rapid transit. and. Uh, I got that. Anthony Fox, the former Secretary of Transportation under President Obama, used to be the mayor of Charlotte. I personally briefed him on it in his office when he was the secretary. A wonderful man, too. Uh, and he was pretty excited about what we were doing. And it's just now, right now, getting built out. And the first leg of that will operate this spring. But there's, uh, we have a whole system for the area built out. A lot, of, a lot of pushback on that. A lot of fighting on that, uh, just on the transit part itself. But uh, the all-electric part was okay. I was the mayor at the time, and I was the one who kind of had the team that helped design all that, and everybody knew I was about electric anyway. So that part was okay. It was it was more the transit route that was the the transit system that was uh, getting pushback. Redesigning streets makes people yes, it does. upset. Yes, it does. <laughs> they want their <laughs> the parking spaces, the everything. The if it, that's gone, it's chaos. It is while they're doing it, and. Uh, some people actually are still fighting while it's being built out right now. But it's, it's going to happen, and you just have to try to convince people that this will be better in the long run for everybody. Uh, you know, as I had to rebuild things, I had to redo streets in Indianapolis, and everybody hates it while it's happening. And then afterwards, everybody kind of says, boy, that was great. I'm hoping that's, a, that's what they say with the bus rapid transit. Um, how do you um, – it seems like a lot of Republicans don't think like you. What, what do you how do you explain your own party to people? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, actually, I, I, I look at this differently. For instance, transit, for, for a lot of people, they say that as a handout and why we use it, everybody has to pay into that. I see that as economic mobility, which is, I think, one of the one things that Republicans talk about, right? This is having, instead of having somebody, and I, I heard this all the time when I was the mayor, you know, the poor, they have to buy a used car that gets 10 miles to the gallon and it breaks down every month and they have to pay for that. And they're on hourly rages. And I, I, I could tell this story. I told this story quite a bit. And this poor lady had to go to the doctor one day. She had to take the day off, lose her salary for the day to go to this particular doctor. Take three buses. It it just isn't convenient. Uh, And other people have to take their cars, and it doesn't work. If you have a good transit system for everybody, the poor and the lower, lower income folks have an opportunity to get to work on a good basis and do better and not have to worry about transportation, that's economic mobility to me. I think we just have to look at these things differently. And then that helps everybody. The tax base increases then, right? And companies want tax base. Uh, when Amazon came out, uh, you know, with, with their big thing uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and now that went to New York and, and D.C., but what they said was we want good transit. We want that for our employees. And that's why I built the bike lanes. People want those things. People want good transit. Uh, companies want good transit for their workers. Those are, and we have to look at that differently instead of looking at it kind of parochially and narrow-minded. We have to look at – if mayors don't look at things holistically as the city and trying to get people to move into the city and talent to, to come in and, and businesses to attract, then you're missing the boat. If you're looking at strict dollars and cents all the time, uh, good luck. 
what do you think the biggest challenge is for for getting over these hurdles, uh, for getting over all these mindset hurdles? I think we have to talk to them in different terms. Uh, I always used to joke that you know how to you have to know how to speak Republican and how to speak Democrat. <laughs> I've said that a number of times in the Indianapolis area. And so when people would interview me, I said, you can't, if it's, if it's a conservative audience that I'm talking to, I said, you can't ask, you can't ask it then in that way. You have to say it this way. And then we can get the point across to them and they'll understand it. And so that, that's, I learned that along the way. And you just have to do that because uh, most people will get there. I mean, the, my book is clearly written for a conservative, right-leaning audience. I hope that everybody buys it. So I hope people on the left will buy the book too, because it's a great argument, I think. But uh, you just have to know what what their buzzwords are and what their thinking is. Well, I will look forward to hearing more people um, <laughs> learn how to talk about climate change and Republican, I guess. Yes. Right. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining me. Gregory Ballard, he is a former mayor of Indianapolis, was mayor there from 2008 to 2015. He's a retired lieutenant colonel in Marines. And his book is Less Oil or More Caskets, the National Security Argument for Moving Away from Oil. Thanks a lot for joining me. And I enjoyed visiting Indianapolis. And I hope a lot of people go down there and enjoy the bike lanes and the electric cars that you can rent and everything. That, that's a great thing. Well, thanks, Jerome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And go visit Indy. It's a great place. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll do a little Brexit recap on today's activities. We'll also talk about the International Puppet Fest, which is coming to Chicago. And we'll talk with Heather Henson, Jim Henson's daughter, here with an indigenous puppet show that you will be amazed by. Join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore and Kyle White-Sullivan for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.